welcome to this week's episode of the Religion Prof Podcast. My guest this week is Robert Garassi, who is joining me all the way from India. Uh, he's usually at, uh, well, he's still at, uh, at least in the faculty sense, uh, Manhattan College in the United States. But thanks to a Fulbright Nehru Fellowship and the uh, National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore, uh, he is currently in India. And India was the focus of his most recent book, uh, Temples of Modernity, Nationalism, Hinduism, and Transhumanism in South Indian Science. And now he's back in India. And so I'm hoping that this will, <laughs> this will give us a major uh, starting, obvious starting point to talk about uh, what he's recently done and what he's doing now. So Robert, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate you making the time, uh, despite what is the biggest time difference between me and somebody I've had on the show to date. <laughs> thank you so much, James. It's really a pleasure. Um, I'm delighted to, to join you and talk to you. I've been fortunate to be friends with you now for some years, to know you as a colleague now for some years. So I'm happy to be here on the podcast. Uh, as you said, yeah, I'm here in India, in Bangalore, uh, which is where I was six years ago for my, I was on a Fulbright Nehru uh, research fellowship six years ago. And at that time I was hosted by the Indian Institute of Science. And this time around, I am back living on the Indian Institute of Science campus, but I'm affiliated with the National Institute of Advanced Studies, as you said, um, and with very radically different projects. Um, you mentioned my first project, which includes, you know, a study of transhumanism, among other things. And my current project, I'm actually dealing largely with um, weaving communities, uh, handloom and uh, the, the trajectory from traditional technology, hand spinning, handloom, up to its deployment on digital technologies like Instagram. Um, but so a very different project from the first time when I was in, I wasn't interviewing weavers the first time I was interviewing scientists and engineers. So for that book, you mentioned temples of modernity. Um, that book was based on interviews and observations with um, dozens, probably close to a hundred scientists and engineers in academia industry and a few in hacker culture. Wow. So one of the things that people are probably already guessing is that uh, we both have in common that uh, we have eclectic and diverse interests and uh, <laughs> we're easily uh, distracted by a bright new shiny topic that usually has some connection to what we were doing previously, right, but also yeah, exactly. takes it in an unexpected direction. So let's, let's back up to one of the first things you said, which is that you know, we've, we've known each other for a number of years and I feel like you know, you're one of the few people that immediately springs to mind when I think about who was engaging with um, science fiction, yeah. sort of the future of technology and trajectories that connect uh, present and future, both potentially in the real world and in, in fiction, uh, yeah. even before I was. And so yeah, I mean, when people ask you, what do you do? I mean, you could say, you know, you're, you're a religion <laughs> professor, but you know, if they ask about your field, how, do you, how would you characterize what it is that you do? <laughs> Oh, you know, this, this reminds me, so no one's ever actually asked me how I do that, but it reminds me of a story from many years ago when I was a graduate student, and I was at the University of California, Santa Barbara, which is an absolutely spectacular place both to live and to study, and I had just such amazing faculty, and Ninian Smart, the great historian of religions, 
was there. Uh, he was a emeritus professor when I was a student and he came and I, he was talking to graduate students and he was telling us about how every time he's on an airplane, he had learned a lesson from being on airplanes because when he's on an airplane, people say, what do you do? Right. If they're trying to make a conversation with you, the person sitting next to you. And he used to say, I'm a scholar of religion, right. Or a historian of religions. And then they would spend the whole rest of the plane ride telling him what they thought religion was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, which everyone who's ever studied religion has had that experience. You tell people you study religion and all of a sudden their pet theories about what religion are, you know, come right out. And, and he said, so what he made up was his own term, worldview analyst. And then yeah. people, would, people would ask him what he did on the airplane. He'd say, I'm a worldview analyst. And then they would say, what the heck's a world analyst? And he would spend the whole rest of the plane ride telling them what he thinks religion is, right? So it was a brilliant, brilliant turnaround. And when you asked me that just now, I realized I need one of those. Because <laughs> people ask me what I study, I say, oh, religion and science. And then they immediately launch into this whole narrative about the conflict of religion and science. And um, it's a conflict that actually frequently doesn't exist, um, but, but that exists very powerfully in the popular imagination. I mean, it does exist in real ways for real people in voting booths, uh, in political debate. Um, But most of the time it's more imaginary than real. So I actually need to come up with something really good because I usually tell people I study religion, science and technology. And at least the technology side allows me to divert toward things that I think are more interesting than the supposed conflict between religion and science, because that's not A, particularly true for most people, and B, particularly analytically interesting for me. But talking about where technology and religion come into contact, then all of a sudden they mean, they, you know, we do get to that, what do you mean by that? And then I say, oh, well, you know, I started with things like people uploading their minds into robots. And then, you know, and then people go, oh, wait. <laughs> And that's what led, you know, you talked about our mutual interest in science fiction. For me, the entry point there was actually the roboticists and AI theorists who claimed we were going to upload our minds into robots. And I had to backtrack in the science fiction universe to start trying to see where those ideas kind of emerged. So, you know, like, for me, the, the, the entry point really was the fascinating moment of intersection with technology, um, what we build and how we, you know, how we kind of create the environment around us technologically. Um, and then that got me to science fiction, which I was a fan of as a kid um, and even as a young adult, but I had stopped studying. I had stopped reading science fiction. You know what graduate schools, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you go to graduate school and they make you read you know, Bourdieu and, and Rakan and, you know, whatever, you know, you're reading Foucault until you're blue in the face. Um, and so you have no real time to read for pleasure, which I think is a great disservice that grad, you know, I loved my years in graduate school. They were tremendous. I was very, very happy, but it's a tremendous disservice. I think that in a world where everybody reads and reads and reads, they read very little that's for um, not just pleasure, but for connection to the world around them better. 
because um, Foucault doesn't connect you to the world around you. Um, even, even if Foucault has some interesting things to say about power and the role of power in society, you know, like, you only bore your non-academic friends when you whip out your Foucaultian analysis of, you know, your local bar. <laughs> They're like, man, just have a drink <laughs> and yeah. relax. You know, so I think actually we, we would do well in graduate school to encourage our students more to um, kind of branch out a little bit. So I had to go backwards. I had lost many years. And of course, there were always things that I hadn't read. So I had to go yeah. back and, and read a bunch of science fiction. And I'm still catching up. Many years later, I still feel like there are things that I have not read yet that are relevant to my intellectual and literary interests and that I just haven't gotten it. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. Uh, for me, it was it was uh, actually when I was adjuncting uh, at two different uh, institutions in two different locations, uh, just after moving back to the United States from Romania, where I'd been teaching for a few years, and having a significant commute on the train. And so finally started getting caught up on some science fiction that I was long overdue to read. It was, uh, it was Frank Herbert's Dune uh, series. Oh, yeah. And so that was, that was when I got onto that. But yeah, then, you know, finding myself in higher education in a, an institution where there was a lot of opportunity to teach on side interests and turn this thing that I was hoping to do more of for pleasure into work, which of course doesn't always turn out well, either for the pleasure no, or for the work. Uh, but, great thing when you can swing at them, yeah. right? Yeah. And I think in both of our cases, we could say that uh, doing research that relates to literature that we enjoy um, yeah. actually does have can potentially benefit both right can it benefit the enjoyment and you can bring that enjoyment into the classroom and into the research realm as well absolutely sometimes <laughs> so yeah. i yeah i have colleagues absolutely. yeah i have colleagues who uh would share the interest in technology and society in fact we have a, a science technology and environmental studies uh program at butler where uh, there are a number of colleagues from a range of fields who get together to talk about things that we're reading that relate to this topic and you know different things. I also have a colleague in my own department uh, who does work on uh, Indian religion, uh, particularly Hindu-Christian relations. But there are a lot of people who either work on you know technology and society or work on religion in India, but yeah. who who won't connect the two, either yeah. as relates to weaving or as relates to transhumanism. <laughs> and so one of the things I like to do when I get somebody on the podcast is, you know, obviously in one sense, I'm saying, you know, why should people read your book? But I can think yeah. of people who probably should read your book because it's connecting with something they're interested in. But sometimes when something that somebody's written or something somebody's working on connects with one of two yeah. subjects and one of them interests us, then it goes to the bottom rather than the top of our reading list. And so, you know, what's happening in India, you know, in weaving, you know, certainly talk about what you're doing there and how you ended up working on that, but also you know, what's distinctive about transhumanism in India that people who work on Indian religion or on transhumanism as a global phenomenon, as it has to be by definition, uh, ought to be paying more attention to what's going on there. Yeah, you know, to hit the first point you raised, I think it's a terrible shame often that we have these kinds of intellectual blinders. Um, I was, you know, I just published a paper in um, Science, Technology, and Human Values in 
that's in the science and technology studies universe where they really don't talk a lot about religion. And I was very pleased that they were welcoming of the work that I was bringing to them. Um, because my own work is often informed by science and technology studies. Um, but not, there isn't enough of that in the world of religion and science. So people who study religion and science, they often don't really know what the contributions are that come from science and technology studies. And that's really regrettable. And then you get people in science and technology studies and they don't realize they haven't really, because they're interested in, you know, the sets of problems that have always occurred to them as being interesting. It hasn't occurred to them that there are intersections where a little bit of religious studies theory and so forth could really help them move forward. All of us are kind of, you know, better off when we can figure out ways to, to hear from one another, even though that costs us time and energy, you know? Um, so I, you know, when I came here, it was in part because I thought what really needed to happen in the study of religion and science in non-Christian contexts was a lot more ethnographic work. Mm. And I don't have graduate students, so it's not like I could just sort of farm them out <laughs> which is honestly what I would do. If I was like, in a, if I was at Harvard or Yale or whatever, I'd like send my grad students around the world um, to go do the work, to learn the things that I want to know. That would be my objective. Like I want to know something about what's going on in Uruguay. You know? So that's where your dissertation is. I'd be one of those guys who's like, who, who makes the graduate students learn the things that he wants to know. Um, but I didn't have that opportunity. And fortunately, the taxpayers were very kind to me. And so my first Fulbright neighbor and they coming here. And what I did when I got here was I just started interviewing people. And I would, you know, pitch to a scientist or an engineer, I'd say, hey, I'm writing this book, I want to write a book on religion and science in India. Um, you know, can we talk? And they would usually say things to me like, oh, religion and science don't have anything to do with each other here, but okay, sure, if you really want to. And then I would sit down with them and they'd say, religion and science here are not like in your country. And I'd be like, really? What's it like in my country? Because I'm not sure <laughs> I'm talking about that. Um, and, and it would quickly mean, turn out that what they meant was that in my country, America, that, you know, we have like conflict between the two. And I was like, okay, let's just presume you're right. There's conflict. I, I'm not sure I agree with that, but let's just, let's just presume you're right. Tell me about idea, you know, and, it's, and, and we would have started a conversation with, oh, these things don't have anything to do with each other. And before you know it, we'd had an hour long conversation or more about really fascinating, interesting ways that religion and science interact with one another. And, you know, some of my research, some of my recent publications, for example, have been on a, uh, an amazing festival. It's called Ayuda Puja. Ayuda means, it means tool or weapon. And Puja means ritual of or right of. So it's like the ritual of the tools, although most people actually will translate to English for you as worship of the tools. Mm -hmm. And it's a one day festival. And, um, Machines are set aside, but they're also anointed with sandalwood paste, um, with flour, you know, the flowers are put on them, and, and they're given a day of rest. That's how it's described, right? And a priest will often come and conduct a puja at an office, a laboratory, a workshop, and so forth. It's really very fascinating, very interesting, and I was fortunate to come back in 2016 for Ayuda Puja here on campus, 
And, um, you know, and the, the same people who are telling me religion and science have nothing to do with each other, after we talked for a while, it would turn out there was a, forget everything else, right? Just this one thing was enough for me to be like, wait, you told me that religion and science have nothing to do with each other. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me there's a festival called Worship of the Machines. <laughs> they obviously have something to do with each other. And that's fascinating. And let's talk about it, right? Because I'm not here to tell you that, you know, Aida Puja doesn't make sense or anything. In fact, when I bring it up with engineers in America, U.S. engineers in industry, for example, when I've had conversations with them about it, have a tendency to say, oh, that makes perfect sense. Right. And, and we're not talking about Hindu engineers in the U.S. I'm talking about um, secular atheist engineers in the U.S. Who, will tell, who, who have told me it makes perfect sense that you might give the tools a day off, like a day of rest and a day of thanks. Right. Um, because these are the things that make your livelihood possible. Right. So, you know, what was fascinating to me was that there were a lot of things that were that would come up in conversation with scientists and engineers, at least not in the United States, talking about as part of the religion and science conversation. Um, So in that first book, and I felt really bad that the subtitle had all those isms in it, Mm. (laughs) nationalism, Hinduism, and transhumanism. But that was the best way I had to express the kinds of things that came up. But, but what came up in conversations were a lot of really interesting political positions that people would take about science as service. And it turns out there's a long uh, history there that I tried to articulate in terms of the nationalist movement and how science got integrated into nationalism. Um, and nationalism itself was integrated into religious ideas and practices. Lots of people were telling me about the kinds of service that science could produ- provide, produce for, for public, public good. And so what became the chapters in the book on nationalism were really my effort to trace the way scientists thought about science as a public good, right? And they were connected very much to the nationalist movement and nationalism was connected itself to kind of religious ideas and so there was that part of the, the picture. And then there were the parts of the, what I was learning about ways in which clearly Hindu uh, religious practices were connected to science and technology. So it is a very, it, it, it's precise in that I was not interviewing, say, Catholic scientists or Muslim scientists, although I did talk to some of each, right? But the book doesn't engage the ways, for example, a Catholic in Bangalore might think about science. Um, it, whereas it does deal with Hindu practices, Hindu icons, Hindu images, as I saw them and found them in scientific institutions. And I just wanted to document that because I thought it was interesting and not something that you see a lot of in, you know, if you go back, say, 10 years to a lot of the work that engaged religion and science in India, a lot of it is kind of, you know, someone who happens to be Hindu and happens to be a scientist maybe tells you what religion and science are in India. And that didn't strike me as a particularly good method. And really depressingly right now, we're seeing a plethora of surveys And I don't want to, I'm not down on surveys in general. They certainly tell you something. 
but they also, they don't necessarily tell you what they think you do, especially when the person surveying is not him or herself expert in the area. For example, you know, like Mackenzie Brown knows Hindu thought and practice. So when Mackenzie Brown in, does a survey about religion and science uh, among, say, Hindu identifying scientists, at least Mackenzie Brown knows what he's asking, and he knows a little bit about what they're telling him. But we're seeing surveys, and some of them are really getting well publicized by people who actually have spent no meaningful time in India, don't actually know what the cultural context of the questions are. And so that's really not productive, I don't think. I think you need to spend time with people and talking to people and around people. And that was how some of these things emerged for me that were really interesting in terms of Hinduism. You know, for example, I cottoned on kind of early into my time that there were people who, you know, saw science and technology in ancient mythology. Mm -hmm. And so I started talking to people about that, right? And the crazy thing was right after I left India that first time, the new prime minister, Narendra Modi, just a year later made this big public announcement about uh, cloning in the Mahabharata and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it became really big news. And I was sitting there going, man, I'm still writing our book. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the, this idea that there is, and we're seeing it every year right now in the Indian Science Congress, someone comes and tell, said, gives a talk about how they had airplanes in the time of Rama and Ravana. And lots of Indian scientists panic and they're like, you're making us all look really unscientific with these crazy ideas, right? But there are other scientists and engineers who are comfortable with these ideas. And so I got to write a little bit about those kinds of things. And then, you know, as you said, you and I both have this habit of trying to look for like the links in what we were doing with what we are doing. And so I got to talk to people about transhumanism because I had kind of built my career on the study of transhumanism. So I talked to people about that and what was or wasn't, you know, happening in India with regard to transhumanism. And so those ended up being the main themes of the book. And the book doesn't tell you everything interesting that one could know about religion and science and technology in India. It just tells you some interesting things that you could know from being here in Bangalore, from talking to South Indian scientists and engineers and trying to understand you know, I mean, I came in with some pretty general questions and then we'd have open conversations about science and technology uh, and where that intersected with religion were the things that ended up in my book. I actually thought I was going to write a more general book, but the religion stuff was the stuff I thought was most interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I'm glad you brought that in because one of the things I was, you know, you know wondering about is, you know, just how widespread some of those views that one encounters if one reads um, authors who happen to be Hindu writing about the intersection of uh, religion and science. Um, I can think of, you know, uh, we actually had uh, Amit Goswami who uh, came to campus some years ago. Uh, so I read some of the things that he wrote, but you know, you hear these things about, you know, the, the technology, you know, it's, you know, we, we affirm where science, what science comes up with, we affirm the conclusions and the developments, but the Vedas were there, you know, thousands of years ahead of uh, where yeah. things are now, uh, which is, for the most part, uh, 
a different approach to the intersection between, or the, the possible connections one could draw between ancient texts of a religious character and modern science than one typically finds in the Christian tradition, where either it's, you know, these things are new and we draw on principles and figure out how to apply them, or, you know, the Bible got there first, but it got there in a different way that invalidates what certain scientists are saying, right? <laughs> you know, or things like that. And so, yeah. you know, it configures, you know, somewhat differently. But one thing I've never been able to determine just because I have not traveled widely enough or talked widely enough about it is, you know, is, is there a, you know, just as in the United States, some of the loudest voices or some of the authors that, uh, you know, become notorious or, you know, well-respected or whatever are not always representative of what, uh, mm. you know, what is more pervasive either among scientists or among religious people or in popular culture. And this, of course, you, you engage with that by you know, encountering, well, here's, as an Indian, I know what's going on in America at the intersection of religion and science, things like that. So what's your sense of, you know, is there, is there a, a characteristic approach to this intersection among among Hindus in India? Well, two separate things. One having to do with the more broad question of, say, religious practice and scientific practice. One of the things that the book, that, that Temples of Modernity book, that I think for me is the most, one of the most compelling parts of what I was trying to articulate, is that we have a tendency in America to really um, take advantage of our Protestant Christian background mm. in ways that aren't, and I happen to not be Protestant Christian. I'm just, we're America, we're a Protestant Christian kind of environment. And we take advantage of that in ways that aren't always helpful. Uh, the focus on what people believe mm -hmm. has really dictated way too much scholarship in the study of religion. And the idea that what governs people's lives is what they believe it leads in the study of religion and science to a lot of conversation about scientific theories and religious beliefs, mm -hmm. right? And normal people don't live their lives really pushing those quite so heavily. So when you look at a religious scientist, say a, a scientist in India who may or may not be Hindu, um, when that person goes to the laboratory, that person tends to just do science in the laboratory. And when that person goes home, that person may well do, you know, conduct a puja at home, may have a puja room, which is a, like a kind of closet-sized room where you might have a small altar to avert a number of gods. And so the scientist may go home and go into his or her puja room and conduct a puja. And that person may not even, that person may even tell you that he or she's an atheist. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of complicated dynamics that are about what people do, how they practice mm -hmm. rather than what they might believe. Uh, and so I think in the study of religion, science and technology, we really need to get our minds wrapped around the fact that belief and practice don't always coincide um, and that you can believe different things at different times. We have a tendency in our culture to think, and even though we ourselves do this, <laughs> right, we have a tendency to outwardly claim that you're a hypocrite for like doing one thing in setting A and doing another thing in setting B. But even though we say that, the reality of the human experience is that you do different things in setting A 
uh, from setting B. And often your belief structures can be conditioned such that setting A seems appropriate to you and setting B seems appropriate to you, even though you don't necessarily let those things kind of mix and mesh and whatever else. I mean, take a perfectly ordinary American Christian who goes to the doctor's office because he or she got sick. That person does not go to the doctor's office because he or she thinks there is a God in control of what's going on right now. But in another setting, that person may very well express a belief that God is in control of who's sick and who's not sick and, and all these other things. So the reality is the real human experience is not as married to faith structures as we often suppose people to be. So one of the things I tried to pull tease out was this idea that like, look, you're looking at a lot of things happening in India that are very interesting. And frankly, we should reflect on ourselves with that very thing. And to go back to the example you started with having, you know, we were talking about, you know, whether there's cloning in Mahabharata, whether or not the Vedas got there first in terms mm -hmm. of science and technology, that is a long-standing belief that emerged as far as I can tell, the best tracing I've been able to find is that it really emerges during the colonial era mm -hmm. when, when originally when European colonizers kind of moved around the world, they saw themselves as often culturally superior, but not necessarily scientifically or technologically superior to the people whom they encountered. Right? India actually had an extremely well-developed technological culture, um, and many of its goods were valuable all around the world. And th but the British came to believe, perceive themselves as scientifically superior and more modern than the people of India. And so one of the responses to that was to say, no, 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 we in India, just look at this story, for example, about a flying vehicle. Obviously, that means we really had flying vehicles. So it becomes an anti-colonial -colo uh, strategy. And an interesting one that then persists into the contemporary era, and this is where I attempt to answer something you, you asked, which is how pervasive such beliefs are. Um, and the idea that science that contemporary science is locatable in the Vedas is extremely common, but people read it very differently. There's a wide variety of interpretations. You find people, including scientists, who say, oh, that's absolute rubbish, you know, just made up by some people. You find some people, including scientists, who say, well, it's not true, but it does give you like an interesting way to talk and think. And so if in science, for example, you're trying to explain how a telephone works, you might talk about how in the Vedas it says that people could use their minds to talk to each other just to make sense of it for people who know the, the stories from the Vedas. And then you, you do, in fact, find scientists and engineers, and they are the minority, but you find them who will tell you things like, yeah, you know, it's entirely possible we did have flying vehicles in ancient India. You know, maybe that's why they're, they're referred to. But the vast majority of scientists and engineers will tell you, no, of course there weren't flying vehicles in ancient India, because if there were, you would have had to have this whole host of other sciences and technologies, and we have no evidence of that anywhere. So, of course, they didn't have that. You know, the majority of them will tell you no. But that doesn't mean they haven't heard it. It doesn't mean they won't have a conversation about it. Um, or even try to turn it to their uses. For example, in the book, I reference um, a science magazine 
called Resonance, which is an interesting science education journal. It's a distributed to high schools and colleges. And in a one particular issue where the chief article was about aeronautics, there was a picture of Pushpika Vimana. This is that's the flying vehicle uh, from the from the Ramayana that Ravana owns. But after Rama defeats Ravana, uh, Rama has rescued his wife Sita, and they get in the Pushpika Vimana and they fly back to Rama's home city in Yodhya. Um, but so there's a picture of Pushpika Vimana on the cover of this science journal, and the article on aeronautics began with one or two paragraphs about mythical flying vehicles before then having a, a, an extended conversation about actual, um, you know, rotorcraft and jet aircraft and so forth. So even among people who would dispute whether or not there was, you know, flying vehicles in ancient India, they might still have a good reason for talking about it which is to say to communicate scientific and technological ideas to their audience. Yeah. Well, so I, I think for me, yeah. interesting kind of religion science meetup point, because it's not about conflict, it's about communication. Mm. And how does an idea get communicated? Yeah, thank, thank you so much. It's, there's so much that's fascinating that I would love to talk to. I think we're going to probably have to have other conversations, but I've, I think we've, I've taken up enough of your time for today and have, uh, you know, we've pushed our luck to the limits in terms of our connection and things like that. But let me ask one, <laughs> let me ask one more question that's at an intersection of uh, an interest of both of ours. It's uh, one that goes way back for you and which uh, has been an increasing uh, focus for me. So that I'm now uh, sort of collaborating with a colleague in computer science, uh, exploring some intersections. But you know, I know that you mentioned in the book that you know you you mentioned computers in particular, talking about you know the the anointing of them and giving them a day of rest and things like that. Mm. Um, and we know that you know Bangalore you know is a a technology hub, but in particular you know computer science has uh, been a, a major a focus of of industry and development in India. Mm. And so, uh, just as a last question, what's you know what's of interest that people should be paying attention to? as regards to specifically computer science and religion in an Indian context? Mm. Um, well, I'm, I have a side project right now, which is another book that is again, again about some of these transhumanist themes and what we might be looking at in the future because increasingly while, you know, Europe and the U.S. kind of dominated the, early rise of, you know, the last hundred years or so of kind of transhumanist thinking, depending on how you want to, you know, post Fyodorov in, in, in Moscow, you know, how you want to think about that. Um, I think we're going to see more and more cultures kind of pitching in to how people are thinking about questions like human enhancement, uh, the relationship between human beings and machines and i think india is kind of poised to have a conversation about what its cultural resources are for thinking about machines intelligent machines um, human computer interaction and in fact if your listeners might be excited or interested to go to youtube and search for a movie called anukul a-n-u-k-u-l and it's based on a 1970s era Satyajit Ray 
story. The great filmmaker Sachajit Ray, who wrote some science fiction stories, Anakul is about a robot who, an intelligent robot who is rented or purchased or whatever by a Sanskrit teacher. And so the robot reads the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavad Gita becomes a crucial plot element in the robot's relationship with the, the owner and human society. And so I think there are, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who wants to go. And I don't know if you've seen Hanukkah yet, James, but if you haven't, you'll, you'll definitely enjoy it, I think. And, you know, it pulls at Indian cultural resources, you know, in particular for those who have read the Bhagavad Gita, they will know that one of the principal kind of uh, religious um, uh, ideas that runs through that text is the idea of doing one's duty, that you're supposed to do your duty at all times. And so the idea of duty is one that if you look at, say, the way religion and artificial intelligence and so forth have interacted in America or Europe, I don't think the word duty appears anywhere. Hmm. But in India, it does. And so that gives us another, you know, so uh, to my mind, another set of cultural resources. We are, you know, I'm more, I'm much more concerned about environmental catastrophe and whether or not, you know, all the insects will die or, global warming will, will change agricultural patterns in ways that, you know, um, lead to, to massive human problems. I'm much more worried about that than I am about whether robots are going to take over the world. I'm not particularly worried about robots taking over the world. Um, but we are assuming we can kind of navigate the challenges to our environment that we have created. Um, we will see machines being increasingly powerful and we will see human beings interacting with those in a variety of ways from the military to the domestic. And some of the tools we might gain from other communities and cultures could be really, really valuable for us in thinking about how we want to build, what we want to build, and how we want to use whatever technologies we end up with. Well, thank you so much for that recommendation. I have not seen the movie yet, so thank you for not spoiling it. But thank you, thank you for connecting me with it. Uh, I'm going to go look for it. Uh, hopefully, people listening will do the same. And I'm going to watch it. Uh, I'm going to continue working on uh, the project I'm working on as you continue working on that side project. And then at some point, uh, we clearly need to continue this conversation and keep talking about these things because- uh, I look forward to it. I hope to yeah. be in San Diego uh, in November. Okay, well, maybe maybe we'll manage to uh, chat. Well, I, I definitely would love to chat then, regardless of whether we record it and share it with other people. Uh, but, Robert, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, being on the show today. Thank you so much for, uh, thank you for a range of things you've written from, you know, apocalyptic AI through to temples of modernity and the things that you're currently working on. And uh, thank you for being on the show today to share them with listeners. My pleasure. Thanks, James. Thanks, and for everyone who's been listening, uh, thanks so much for listening, and have a great rest of your day. Bye for now. <laughs>